Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. All right, time to talk sport, time to talk golf again. And we welcome back Phil Tatarangi. Hi, Phil. Uh, it's been quite a few days, uh, quite a, a, a few uh, newsy days in the game of golf with uh, the US Open upon us, a great finish in the Canadian Open, and overriding it all, the deal between Live Golf and the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour, the European Tour. So let's talk about that first, because that was just an extraordinary deal, an extraordinary announcement that just seemed to come out of the blue, didn't it? Really did, Pete. Nice to be back on with you. Uh, been a few weeks since we were uh, last talking with the PGA Championship. That was a quite a, a stunning result, I guess, in the world of golf in, in lots of ways with a, a defector winning one of the big four. And uh, in Brooks Kepka, I guess he's righted his career and back on the winning streak in, in the big tournaments where he's already collected five of them now. And I know we'll get to the US Open, but it's something to keep an eye on uh, over the next couple of years because he's a hell of a competitor. And he's one of those, of course, that were, you know, ostracised, uh, were cut off, were called all sorts of names for going to the Saudi Back League with Live Golf. Uh, it seemed like for a long time, Pete, that there was no way these two sides would come together. There, there was probably only one result that everyone was either hoping for or was seeing as the most likely uh, reality, uh, and that was that Live Golf would somehow go defunct and not have a business plan and kind of go away. I guess those people were mostly more hoping than looking at, you know, the the track record of um, of the Saudis and the way that they've invested in sport. You put all of the human rights stuff to the side because nobody on the planet. Uh, supports any of that. But when you have a look at a public investment fund that is fairly deep, uh, they were always going to hang around. Uh, They made a significant investment, and golf was a sport just like football, just like motor racing, just like a number of other different sports where they've invested heavily, and they were always going to be, uh, I guess, a niggle in the establishment. And uh, what was really interesting is that these two parties ended up behind closed doors coming together. Quite extraordinary. But when you look at the history of sport also, and you'll be like me, old enough to remember World Series cricket, the Kerry Packer influence. You'll be certainly old enough to remember what happened in rugby league in the 1990s. On both occasions, it was rich men trying to buy the sport. In the end, both of those rich men, i.e. Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch, bought the sport and they they uh, they won. And even though this is on a much, much bigger scale because there are far more millions and billions involved, uh, the rich men, the money men, have won again, haven't they? And that, that says something about sport in the latter years of the 20th century and as we go forward in the 21st century, doesn't it? Sport is basically who's got the most money. And you're probably leaving out the influence of um, the Indian Cricket Board and how it's not to say that they've bought the sport, but they have the most influence over the sport of cricket with a game that they chopped in half effectively and said, yeah, we think this is going to be a new format for the game and the most lucrative format of the game. 
and there's probably some of those in the establishment, um, the ECB, that would say, I don't think so. Um, and here we are a few years later and, you know, got international players that are trying to figure out when can they be available for their country because they're playing in multiple leagues around the world, earning millions of dollars for playing in small tournaments that uh, in the history books probably will be go down as being relatively irrelevant. But uh, as you say, when you've got wealthy people uh, and they've got a concept and they've got an idea, uh, they tend to have significant influence. And this is exactly what's happened here with the Saudis. Uh, the, the tour have long been, the PGA Tour uh, have long been the best tour in the world. The European Tour had always been the bridesmaids, but have, have supplied a number of the best players in the world. Uh, a number of the other minor tours have had few different players that have come out, but have never had the cash stocks to be able to be a legitimate tour to, to play on for the best players. And so then this live thing comes along, uh, a totally different format. Yes, you can say the relationship with Greg Norman, but moreover, it was the politics that were at play here, Pete, uh, that you and I have discussed on a number of occasions where they've intertwined with sport. The PGA Tour have always had a close relationship with the White House. Um, this is something that I've just learned over, over the years of being around the PGA Tour. But the number of different people around the PGA Tour, whether they be board of directors, whether they be former commissioners, have worked in Washington. They are well connected with politics. Even the previous president, where although he loved, loved golf, um, he may not have got on too well with the establishment per se. There was always a close connection. There is always a close connection between the White House and the PGA Tour. The NBA doesn't enjoy that. Uh, the NFL has had its ups and downs, uh, baseball similarly so. But the PGA Tour, for one reason or another, has always had a close connection with the political hub of the United States. So then the Saudis come along, and of course there's been business done, and there's been business done between governments, of course, throughout history. And there's this lawsuit that's on the table that probably if the commissioner of the PGA Tour is disposed, deposed, excuse me, and the the chairman of the Public Investment Fund is deposed, you just kind of wonder what questions might have been asked with what stuff then would have had to have been disclosed. And so I, my mind instantly goes to when these two hated each other, uh, they were never going to come together. And then as the court date came a bit closer and as the questions started arising, um, around the various different things that may have been disclosed in court, was there only one way that the public wouldn't find out about some of the stuff that either the tour or the White House or the Saudis wouldn't want people to know? Is there only one way that that would happen? Coming together, putting the court case to the side. And so that's maybe just the sceptic in me, but it's maybe also knowing just a little bit behind the scenes that the PGA Tour going to court and being asked curly questions, I don't think that would have gone down too well. <laughs> That's fascinating, Phil. And I guess it's uh, it's the, the inside knowledge that you have through having played and broadcast the PGA Tour and being around the circuit, uh, you know this stuff. And I don't think I've heard that expressed 
in this country before. So, so thank you for that. The question now, though, is what's going to happen in terms of actual events for the golfers, for the players? I'm sure the purses are going to be, frankly, astronomical, bordering on the obscene. I know we have some $20 million events going around now. They could become even bigger purses. But is there going to be just the one PGA Tour or there are still going to be uh, live events played concurrently on the side or is it all going to come together into into one schedule do you think hey look i don't know how it's going to shake out in the immediate term people i think what one thing that i i've looked at and just kind of sat back and observed is that um when live golf was first promoted established as possibly being a thing a lot of the talk around the locker room was is there a place for team golf more team golf. Of course, we've got the Ryder Cup, which is, look, it's the second biggest sporting event uh, on the golfing calendar. Excuse me, it's the second biggest golfing event on the calendar behind the Masters. And then there's the President's Cup, which has kind of unfortunately frittered away a little bit of its relevance because the international team just hasn't been able to win as often as the US team has. And so is there a place for team golf, in, 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 certainly in men's golf, but in, in possibly in men's and women's golf uh, coming together? And so live, that was a big part of their business plan, right? Uh, they're, they're thinking the whole way along. And I know we were distracted by the sums of money, that the, the purses that they were being paid for out there and the signing bonuses for players, et cetera. But their model the whole way along has been very similar to IPL, very similar to Formula One is can we build a franchise around some players uh, all playing on the same team? I don't think they quite nailed the format with 54-hole stroke play just yet. But when we look kind of ahead and you're asking the question of, okay, well, what what tours are going to actually, what tournaments are going to be on? When are they going to be on? Who's going to be playing in them? I think there is going to be a team golf season. Um, the PGA Tour have been the big beast. They've been the big monster that have owned the better part of 40-odd weeks on the golfing calendar each year. There hasn't been a space for other golf to take place around the world of any sort of significance or relevance. The European Tour, DP World Tour, is now known as a strategic alliance with the PGA Tour. And they were coming a little bit closer together to kind of have one schedule across the both tours. It was just a matter of the top players would play in all the same events. Those players that were trying to become top players or were once top players, they would play in the rest of them. And so with the Live Golf Europe, European Tour, DP World Tour, PGA Tour, strategic alliance, it's certainly about the commercial interests of, of those players and purses will go up, sure. But I think that the season and what golf may well shake out, and it might take a couple of years, is that there will be a championship season which will focus around the major championships, the players' championship, and a few other events on the PGA Tour and European Tour schedules. And then there will be this team golf season. That's what I can see happening. And when you get owners that jump in and go, hey, I can own a team that has Rory McIlroy, Tiger Woods, and a couple of others on it just for a bit of fun on the side and a whole bucket load of cash up for grabs, I think a lot of people will jump at that 
regardless of who's involved or who's running it or where the money's coming from. And so that, I think that's something that I, I would keep an eye on as we go forward. In the interim, I think what the way that they're going to figure out who plays where is that there will be a new category that comes in, whether it's the top 30 in the world or top 50 in the world, um, that, that will have the rights to play just about anywhere and everywhere on every any tour. It doesn't matter whether they remember that tour or not. Um, and then it will filter down from there. Ultimately, what the, the synergy and the coming together, the common ground that the Saudis and the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour and even the major championships who have largely stayed out of this, what they want is the best players playing in the same tournaments more often. And so I think that's what, basically what we will see. The unknown of all of this, the unknown of all of this is how far down the list will the money filter out? Will it actually filter out and bolster the likes of the Australasian tour or the Asian tour or the Japanese tour? And I guess that's yet to be seen. All right. Well, Australia, of course, had hosted uh, a live event and it was arguably one of the most watched and most uh, enjoyed golf tournaments ever played on the Australian uh, Australian mainland. And, you know, there was talk of maybe it coming to New Zealand as well, the Live Tour coming to New Zealand as well. So we will see what the future holds. Anyway, before we get to the US Open, we just have a quick word about the end of that Canadian Open in, uh, in <laughs> Toronto last weekend. That was just fantastic. I turned it on towards the end and sort of got involved in it during the playoff. And then, what a fairy tale, eh? Nick Taylor holds a putt from, I was going to say, the end of the earth. It was certainly the uh, the other end of the green for an eagle on the fourth playoff hole, first Canadian winner of the Canadian Open in, what, um, over 60 years. I mean, it's always nice when you have a homegrown winner of a national Open, isn't it? We find that in this country as well. Yeah, sure is, Pete. When you put the paychecks and the politics to the side, um, you know, sport... Is, is quite literally reality TV. You do not know what's going to happen next. Uh, and so when you get sport concluding with a, the, the climax of one moment, uh, we saw that with the Hurricanes game the other day, right? Five, five metres from the line for about five or eight minutes uh, in, t in total uh, when you take all the stoppages of play. And there is one moment that, everyone's eyes are, are looking on whether Artie scores that try or doesn't. Um, golf has those moments when a tournament comes down to either the, the 72nd hole, the last hole, or uh, a playoff where the result can hang on one particular moment, one particular shot. And so to have a Canadian play that shot in Canada for their national open um it will go down as one of, and I know Nick Taylor is not a major champion yet. He's not one of the even headline players on the PGA Tour. Um, but he's been a steady performer. Uh, he's been on a President's Cup and he's been kind of just sniffing around. Um, it will go down as one of the highlight moments in Canadian sport for decades. Uh, they love their golf up there. They love their golf just like they love their hockey. Uh, it's a short season. Uh, it's a very popular sport up there. And uh, the Canadian Open is always one of the highlights on their, their sporting calendar. So to have a homegrown come through in such fashion, 
what a great moment for sport. All right, let's come south of the border into uh, Los Angeles to the US Open for 2023. The first thing to note, Phil, is that this is the first time uh, the USGA's, the US Golf Association's premier tournament has been played in Los Angeles since 1948. I'm just staggered by the fact that um, the second biggest city in America hasn't hosted such a prestigious golfing event for so long. It's just remarkable to think that, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. The, the USGA, uh, more than more than the PGA of America, of course, two majors outside of Augusta National, which is that's not moving anytime soon. So the USGA and PGA have been looking to try and get into the western uh, states of the US for a while. Uh, they've slowly started to do that over the last few years. The reason being is that the time zone works. Uh, it moves into the, the concluding uh, time of, of the of the tournament out on the west coast with a three hour time change means that the tournament concludes in prime time over on the east coast, which is where a lot of the dollars uh, are shelled out effectively for main sporting events around the US. The main uh, audience is on the east coast or certainly in the eastern, central and eastern time zones. And so they've been trying to get into that western uh, Pacific time zone. And you're right, for the USGA, they've struggled to do that with either the venues, uh, Tory Pines has been a US Open venue and they're going back there again. Um, they've been up into the Pacific Northwest. Of course, they go to San Francisco for at the Olympic Club as a US Open venue. But in LA, they've struggled for a venue. They've played at Riviera before, but the footprint just isn't big enough there now. They, that, that tournament is hosts the, uh, excuse me, that course hosts the, the Genesis, Genesis Invitational, the old LA Open tournament now that Tiger Woods' foundation runs. Um, but they haven't had another venue around Los Angeles that's big enough, bold enough, and suitable enough to host the US Open. And it wasn't until about 10 years ago that the members voted upon totally renovating the golf course, the North Course at LA Country Club, and historic old uh, George Thomas uh, renovated design over 100 years ago, and, and Gil Hans, who's one of the preeminent architects in the game right now, came in and gave this a, a once-over uh, with the express intent of attracting the eye of the USGA. They have two golf courses there, and as the crow flies, I mean, you're only a couple of k's away from Hollywood. Hollywood. The, the Sunset Boulevard uh, is right off the back gate of the fifth green. Uh, Century City is, uh, you know, only a couple of miles away from from the golf course. So it is in the heart of all the action in LA, and uh, it'll come with its logistic challenges. But what the USGA will be rubbing their hands with is, and that's what a lot of the corporate sponsorship will be sold on in behind the scenes. Um, and the viewership numbers is that they will be rubbing their hands when it comes to right around six o'clock um, on the eastern time zone till nine o'clock uh, on the eastern time zone is prime time viewing for sport. And with the NBA finals over early, uh, NHL still to, to, to conclude, um, they pretty much have 
the the run of that time zone, and that's where they make all their cash. And it therefore won't matter that the number of spectators on course, because of the size of the facility, which you've alluded to, uh, the number of spectators on course each day, I understand, is limited to 22,000. I mean, that's like having a Rugby World Cup final being played at, say, uh, Waikato Stadium or at Forsyth Bar in Dunedin. It does put a premium on those tickets, though, Pete, and the aftermarket has seen some pricing of tickets for the US Open this year start to edge towards the pricing for a very precious badge to get on Augusta National for the Masters. And so that's not something that the USGA control. But what they do know is that in some areas of the golf course here, there's a way more intimate setting. So although there may well be maybe kind of just a little over half, 50% of the spectators that they would normally see on course for his US Open. I think in particular areas of the course, it'll appear like there is way more spectators and so they will cram them into smaller spots. The action, the the spectators will be a lot closer to the action and I think for the players, uh, at, at times, they'll feel like they're playing stadium golf, albeit Um, on a storied old layout uh, in the middle of a suburban Los Angeles. All right. And to the the layout of the golf course, it's a par 70, but there are five par threes and three par fives. Uh, Quite often you get the absolute minimum uh, on these uh, major championship courses, don't you? Just uh, two par fives, two par threes. But here we've got uh, really an abundance of uh, both of the, the longer holes and the shorter holes and not so many of the regulation par four. So quite uh, a different kind of layout in that respect, isn't it? Too true, too true. And I think that's what's going to offer up some really exciting golf to watch on TV. Um, I think uh, there's going to be a number of different prerequisites, I think, for for, for players' games. I think the the... The USGA tend to like to have a par 70 because I like they like to control scoring and try and keep it as close to even par. I think their motto has been that you know they they just like to for the best player to reveal themselves. Um, at times, uh, they've had golf courses where they've pushed them over the limit and the, they've been more like playing golf down a, a Tarsiel road than it has been playing on fine turf and. Um, and so they haven't quite got that recipe right at times, but I think the the golf course here offers up slightly different different turf than they normally play on because of the time of the year they normally play on cool season grasses. This year they're going to be playing on Bermuda grass in in Southern California, so that that's a slightly different mix. Um, bent grass greens, and so they will be expressly quick and and with some of the pitch and the slope on some of the greens, it's going to be a lot like Augusta National where. If they get the greens fast um, and firm, then it will certainly be a putting contest. I think lag putting will be a a kind of a forgotten um, skill that really only comes into play maybe at the old course, Augusta National, and not many other places. Some greens uh, are very, very big, and when playing safely, uh, will be difficult to get down into. Um, you mentioned the three par fives. A, a couple of those are reachable in two, um, but there's trouble lurking at, at, at all corners. Um, the par threes will be really interesting. We've got a par three that's going to play 
if the USGA stretch it at the 11th hole, it could play over 300 yards, so 270 metres there or thereabouts for a par three. It'll be the most photographed hole of the entire week. And right beside it is going to be the 15th hole that may play under 100 yards on a particular day. And so there's a great mix of holes, long holes, short holes. One key thing around uh, LA North, and I've played it a couple of times, um, is that it's going to be, a, it's certainly going to be an unforgiving uh, task for driving the ball. If you are erratic off the tee, you're not going to score well, full stop. You're not going to be able to get away with it like you can at some other places, like you did at Oak Hill with all of the rough that was lying in the fairways. If you hit it wide enough, of course, you're into where the uh, trampled down ground would be from the spectators and you're okay. And Brooks Kepka managed to get away with that a couple of times. Of course, Bryson DeChambeau um, had a good week there being erratic off of the tee. Uh, I don't think you're going to get away with that uh, at, at LA North. Uh, it's going to be a lot more like uh, Augusta National where it's going to be far more strategic and it's going to test players' games from the big stick to the short stick. All right. Let's talk about some prospects for the event then uh, briefly. Firstly, uh, the only New Zealander in the field, Ryan Fox. His uh, form continues to be steady. He never threatens a win, but he's making a lot of money. In fact, I see he's cracked a million dollars on PGA Tour events this year. So he's been a regular money winner, but not necessarily threatening to win an event. Can you see that changing at all uh, at the US Open? Is he a realistic prospect? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a, driving the ball is a key strength of, of Ryan's, but I think he's become a little bit more consistent throughout his bag. Um, and you mentioned that he hasn't, you know, he's contended yet, um, but he's been really consistent finishing in, you know, somewhere between the top 20 and the top 35, somewhere in there. And uh, I know it's easy to sit back and go, okay, we don't get to see him on tally too much. He's not contending late uh, in the tournaments, but he's not too far away. Uh, had a little bit of communication with Ryan, and I think he's sneaky confident just with where his game is at. It's worked out pretty well. I was just I was sceptical as to with the time off and having Daddy Judy and recovering from a cold after the Masters, how he would go at the PGA. I think that was a great performance on a really tough golf course there. And so I think given that driving the ball um, is one of his key strengths, not only length, but he, it's, he, it's become... Um, He's become a lot more accurate uh, and he's become a lot more confident with, with the driver. And so I expect him to go pretty well. He's um, playing alongside a Seamus Power who I expect will probably be on the European Ryder Cup team uh, later this year. He's going, going along nicely. And he, a young uh, Northern Irishman in Matty McLean who won the US Mid-Amateur. Um, uh, and so he's going to be off in the morning wave uh, early the first day, which for LA at this time of the year, uh, calm wind conditions, a little bit of misty fog early in the day, ideal conditions to get underway in the first round for Ryan. All right. And what about some other prospects? Do we look to the usual stars of the game, the regular contenders, John Rahm, Brooks Kepka, as uh, people to be amongst the favourites, McElroy? who in the end didn't contend in, in Canada, although he had a top 10 finish. Uh, but he's been, again, consistent 
during the year. So do you see these players again being dominant on a course such as uh, LA North? Yeah, with Ram winning the Masters earlier this year and the connection between the architecture at LA Country Club and at Augusta, I think this will, will be a course that Ram really enjoys. He's played there in some college golf and has a lot of respect for the course, uh, has done well there. Um, you, you kind of throw in Victor Hovland, who's had a couple of top tens in major championships, contended late at the PGA and at the Masters earlier this year and won at Jack's Place a couple of weeks ago. And so I think he's a name that will you know, be right in the mix once again. You have a look at Southern California guys. So you go to Xander Shoffley, you go to Patrick Cantlay, you go to Colin Morikawa, who's already picked up a couple of major championships. Those guys are familiar with the conditions, familiar with the course, um, you maybe even throw in a Max Homer who hasn't yet won a major championship but has been trending in the right direction. He's got a handful of PGA Tour wins now and he's right in the mix now playing with some of the stars of the game. Um, over the first couple of days, he's going to be alongside of Murakawa and number one player in the world in Scotty Scheffler. So Homer may well be someone to, uh, to keep an eye on. He's shot 61 around this golf course as well in college golf. So he knows his way way around it. I guess when you have a little bit look bit further down, um, you do wonder about the, the pairing of Matt Fitzpatrick, who who won the US Open last year, twelve months ago, up at Brookline, the other side of the country. He was a staunch um, PGA tour ally, uh, very much against those players that moved to live. And he's being paired with Cameron Smith, who won the open last year. Um, and they will be part of the marquee pairings in the afternoon on the first day. So I think both of those players have got games that suit this golf course as well. When's Jordan Spieth going to win another major championship, Pete? It's kind of time for Jordan to um, to step back out, but I think you know, a lot of eyes will be on what's Rory going to do. It's been nearly nine years since he won a major championship. In actual fact, Spieth only had one PGA Tour win to his name the last time Rory won a major championship. And then all eyes will be on Brooks Kepka. Second at the Masters, won the PGA. What's he going to do at the next major? It may well be one of those purple patches for Brooks Kepka again in his career where he just racks up major championship after major championship and goes on a little run. There are so many fascinating storylines to unfold uh, in Los Angeles this weekend. Phil, I thank you for joining us here on Reality Check Radio, and we look forward to uh, the second, sorry, the third of this year's uh, major golf championships for so many years. Of course, it was the second until the schedule changed and the PGA came forward. But thanks for being with us, and uh, we look forward to uh, you joining us again in the middle of next week, and we can reflect on the event. In the meantime, uh, enjoy your weekend, Phil. Enjoy watching the US Open on the telly. A lot of sport on this weekend. Pete, how do you think those Super Rugby finals are going to go? Oh, I think the Crusaders will win and I think the Chiefs will win and we'll have the final that uh, everybody thought we would have right at the start of the season. The Chiefs would play the Crusaders and the Crusaders would win again in Hamilton. I like the way you're thinking. Let's talk about that later on next week. Alrighty. Phil Tartarangi here on Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, 
Or even better, if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.